You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are talking all about the flu. Just to recap briefly, uh, if you listened in last week, we had a two-part episode on uh, practical evidence-based COVID-19 do's and don'ts. The first part of the episode, and really it's two episodes, so I should say the first episode focused on hygiene and prevention, and the second episode focused on behaviors. And we answered a lot of the commonly asked questions like, you know, should I still uh, disinfect my groceries? Talk to me about air travel. Is it safe to send kids back to school? Things like that. And this week, um, since we're entering flu season, we thought uh, it was only it only made sense to talk all about the flu. So today we're going to walk through the basics of influenza. Of course, we'll talk about the flu shot. We'll talk about um, some population health estimates of the flu. We will talk about some notable pandemics. And um, finally, we are going to do a comparison between um, COVID-19 and influenza. Andrea, I feel like I'm missing. What what else are we going to be talking about today? Anything else? Um, I think that covers everything. But with the basics, we're obviously going to talk a little bit about why influenza is such a unique virus compared to a lot of other viruses, mm-hmm. um, particularly because it is a virus that we do encounter every single year. And there are are a whole lot of myths (laughs) circulating around the flu and the flu vaccine, so we hope to dispel some of those today. But first, we wanted to just do a little icebreaker, as usual, and talk a little bit about what we do in our spare time. So, Andrea, (laughs) I can kick things off and then turn things over to you. Um, I actually, I'm chuckling thinking about this because I don't have a whole lot of spare time. (laughs) I'm sure you're in a similar boat. Um, I have two young toddlers. I know I've referenced that on on past episodes. So when I'm not working full time, I'm mommying full time. So um, definitely super busy from the minute I wake up to the minute I I go to bed. Um, I will say I'm a total homebody. So when there is some spare time, I just kind of like to deflate. And I, I, I sounds terrible, but I say like, let my brain rot a little bit, <laughs> like just totally <laughs> tune everything out because during the day I have to be so on all the time. So um, my husband and I like to, uh, if he's not working at night, because as I mentioned, he's an ER doctor. So sometimes he's not around, but if he is home, we typically um, just vegetate on the couch and watch reruns of our favorite shows, which include Parks and Rec, The Office, uh, New Girl, Schitt's Creek, and he just recently got me into the 4400. Have you ever heard of that, Andrea? I haven't, (laughs) but... I am a huge fan of Schitt's Creek, I will say. Oh, oh my God. Ew, David. Um, <laughs> I'm totally, totally obsessed. Oh, my gosh. I want to be best friends with Alexis. Um, but, yeah, 4400 is actually – it's sci-fi, and I never used to be into sci-fi, but my hubby's a total sci-fi geek, so um, 
for watching that now. And now I'm kind of into it. So that's, that's what I do. How about you, Andrea? Well, you know, I would echo that sentiment, especially since taking on the podcast. I think my my free time has certainly dwindled. Um, you know, I'm a cat mom, so I don't have quite as much of of the the mommying obligations. Thankfully, cats are relatively, um, you know, able to take care of themselves. <laughs> but um, I'm also a homebody. I, I, you know, am a bit of an introvert, which might be hard for a lot of people to believe. I'm really good at faking extroversion when I need to. Um, and my, my favorite hobby is running. Um, unfortunately, uh, I've had a torn hamstring since about February this year. So I've pretty much been completely sidelined, which in the midst of a pandemic, when running is a great mental health and physical health, um, activity. It's been pretty challenging, but I was unfortunately supposed to be in Berlin last month for the marathon there. And I was supposed to be running the New York city marathon again in November. And, um, there's not much of that happening these days. So I'm doing a lot of, you know, TV watching. Um, uh, my partner is, a bird photographer. So I dabble in that occasionally. Um, although the very early morning sunrise photography trips are a little bit challenging for me. Um, <laughs> normally I'd get up really early to go for a run with my running group. And since we're not doing that, I, I am, you know, trying to get a little bit extra sleep when I can these days. And I'd like the listeners to know that just before we hit record on this podcast, Andrea sent me just very casually uh, a photo of three deer that are congregating outside <laughs> her window. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, and we have a lot of a lot of wildlife, which, you know, if we could, and I know, Jess, you echo this sentiment, um, we would adopt them all <laughs> and oh, have a little zoo in the backyard. I will have a farm someday. Mark my word. <laughs> um, okay. Well, Andrea, I think we should just dive into the basics of the flu. Do you want to get us started? Sure, absolutely. So um, influenza is the catch-all term for the disease caused or the viruses that cause the flu or influenza. Um, it's a family of viruses called orthomyxoviridae. And within that family, there are four different um, genera or genuses. Um, genera is the official term for that, of, of influenza viruses. Um, this is a very different family, completely different family from other viruses that we encounter and, and including the coronaviruses completely different family. I want to just be clear about that. Um, something unique about the influenza viruses is their genome, um, like COVID-19, like SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, they are made up of RNA. Um, However, one of the differences, one of the really critical differences is that the genome, so the, 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 um, genetic material that the virus is composed of is actually made up of eight pieces. Um, so it's segmented. And this is in contrast to something like SARS-CoV-2, which has a single piece of RNA. Um, one of the, the reasons this is important is because they have these eight smaller pieces, it enables them, these pieces of RNA, to exchange amongst um, viruses nearby. So um, influenza virus infects the epithelial cells of our respiratory tract, upper respiratory tract. It's a slightly different um, mechanism of infection than what SARS-CoV-2 does, what COVID-19 does. Um, and the 
biggest cause of mortality is due to the fact that the influenza virus actually kills those epithelial cells in our respiratory tract. And these epithelial cells are what we call ciliated. They have little, they're like little finger-like projections and they move in kind of this wave-like fashion. And what they work, they work as little brushes that kind of brush other sorts of pathogens out of our respiratory tract. Um, So once those cells die, now there's no mechanical protection and people end up dying due to secondary bacterial infections such as pneumonia. Um, When we talk about our seasonal flu or our flu season, um, typically we're talking about two different um, genera of the flu viruses. So we have influenza A and influenza B. So influenza A is about, in humans, about 75% of the flu prevalence that we experience. Um, Influenza A also have viruses that infect other species, um, birds, pigs, etc. The mutation rates of influenza A are about three times higher than influenza B. And because they infect other species as well, influenza A strains are the ones that have the potential for pandemic influenza and are the ones that actually do cause the the, uh, select groups of influenza pandemics. Influenza B is specific to humans, um, and it mutates much more slowly. They tend to be somewhat more stable. um, And influenza B strains account for about 25% of the flu cases that we um, encounter. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in with a little bit of context here. Um, I pulled some stats from the 2019 to 2020 flu season. Uh, So last year, uh, a B virus had been diagnosed more among children and young adults up to 24 years old, while an A virus had been more common among adults 65 and older. Um, And I know we're not yet talking about the vaccine, but last year's vaccine worked better against the the B strain of the flu. It was 50% effective uh, versus the A strain, which was about 37% uh, effective. And overall, it worked better in children and teens aged six months to 17 with a 55% effectiveness rate. And I guess it's just interesting to underscore the difference between the the two strains. I don't think that people realize that that there are even are two strains that we're talking about. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, even within those two strains, there are different, there are a lot of different types. And I'll talk about that in, in a bit more detail uh, in a moment. Um, But yeah, the interesting thing with the vaccine is that they typically prevent against multiple strains within both um, genera, both influenza A and influenza B. Um, And the goal is to prevent against the majority of the circulating influenza strains that are around. Um, And we, unfortunately, we don't know the efficacy statistics for the 2020 season yet because, of course, we haven't encountered it. Um, that's generally retrospective data. Um, but typically, we're usually in the realm of that 50% protection, which ultimately is always better than no protection. So now we've started talking a little bit of vaccine about vaccines. Excuse me. So maybe can we jump to our herd from the herd because it is uh, directly relevant yeah. to that topic. Absolutely. So we had a question. Um, actually, we received this question from multiple people. <laughs> <laughs> Why should I get a flu shot if I never get the flu and I'm a healthy adult? Um, Andrea, if I could just jump in here and then... Um, I certainly want to hear your perspective. So I just want to say that anyone who claims that they never got the flu, you know, I never had the the flu before. Why should I get the shot? You're very lucky 
<laughs> that doesn't mean, though, that just because you haven't gotten the flu in the past, that you won't get it in the future, that you're not at risk of ever getting the flu. So there's a very commonly used analogy. Saying that you never had the flu, so you don't need the flu shot, is like saying you've never been in a car accident, so you don't need a seatbelt. We obviously know that that's not true. Um, and just as seatbelts don't pre always prevent an injury in case of, in the case of an accident, the flu shot, you know, as you said, it's not 100% effective, right? It won't always protect you from getting the flu, um, but it does provide some protection, and that's certainly not a reason to get it. Um, so, Andrew, do you want to comment? Yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, on top of that, even when we're talking about prevention or, or um, so vaccines often work to prevent an illness, but they also reduce morbidity. So even if we're talking about a 50% effective vaccine with the flu, and, and the reason that the effectiveness is not quite as high as some of the other vaccines I'm going to talk about in just a minute, um, but even if you still contract the flu after vaccination, um, generally speaking, the case of influenza you get is much more mild than if you were not vaccinated. And in some cases, that can be, um, you know, the difference between surviving it and, and um, succumbing to it. Absolutely. And and so just to, to clarify here, the flu shot is recommended for everyone six months of age and older. Um, of course, there are some very rare exceptions um, if you're immunocompromised or if you have allergies to vaccine in ingredients. Um, I'm not sure if there are any other uh, exceptions, Andrea, but um, basically, yeah. yeah, I'm sorry, go I on. Mean, every, every <laughs> Ultimately, everybody who who is medically qualified should be getting the flu shot. And actually, well, again, we're going to talk about this more later. But um, um, in most people that have immunodeficient um, disorders, uh, obviously, there are some exceptions. But because this is an inactivated virus vaccine, it um, doesn't have the immune system risks as an attenuated vaccine. So mm -hmm. many people in that category can still also qualify for the vaccine. And there's a couple different vaccines out there that we'll talk about too. But I think the big thing to keep in mind is that even if you're generally healthy and your likelihood of, of dying from the flu is low, you're going to interact with people that are in those high risk groups. And for influenza, those are young children, younger than five and older adults over 65. Um, your, your vaccination is going to protect those people that you interact with as well. Um, um, using that concept of herd immunity that we've talked about in previous episodes. Yes. And my favorite analogy to doing a group project in school, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you have the people who are carrying the weight for for those who who, who aren't, uh, you know, doing their share of the work. Um, one other thing, you know, people don't realize that pregnant women should absolutely get the vaccine as well. Um, I just, I, I know that there are a lot of myths circulating about um, how the flu vaccine could actually lead to miscarriage. And I just wanted to note that there's absolutely no scientific evidence that that is true. It is critical that pregnant women get the vaccine um, to protect the, themselves and their fetus. And, um, you know, also I was just thinking when, when you're pregnant, you really, you, you can't take a lot of medications, right? You're limited as to what yeah. you could take. So the last thing I'd want is to be pregnant and to be, you know, to have the flu. So if you are a pregnant, a pregnant woman, and just if you're listening to this and able, go get your flu shot. Absolutely. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so let me quickly just kind of uh, summarize why why this is an annual vaccine. I think a lot of people, um, you know, have some misconceptions about, you know, why this is a unique situation. So as I mentioned, the flu virus is the genome is segmented and this enables it. So if we have one flu strain that interacts with an adjacent flu strain, whether it's in the wild or in a human, they can actually freely um, exchange those pieces really easily, which is something very unique to influenza viruses. And what this enables them to do is evade that B cell antibody immunity that we talked about in episode one. Um, and and these, these two processes that enable it to do so, there's names for them. So it's called antigenic shift and antigenic drift. So antigenic, antigen is just the word for the little piece of the virus that's recognized by the immune system. So the B cells respond to the antigen, and as a result, they produce an antibody against that. Um, these generally are proteins that viruses have on the outside of them. So in the case of COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, that's that spike protein we've heard a lot about. In the case of influenza, there's two proteins. There's one called hemagglutinin and one called neuraminidase. So it's that H and that N that you guys have probably heard about when we talk about the names of the virus strains. So these proteins or these antigens, um, they, they mutate very quickly. So antigenic drift is just the series of accumulated mutations just due to um, the fact that influenza does not have proofreading mechanisms. So it accumulates mutations over time, and then it ultimately becomes a different enough protein that the immune response does no longer recognizes it. The antigenic shift is when they freely exchange those pieces of the segmented genome, and then they become a completely new virus. So we call this process either reassortment or sometimes you'll hear it called recombination. Um, both of these abilities to mutate um, either very, very dramatically by creating a whole new virus um, or by accumulated smaller mutations mean that the viruses we encountered last year are often very different from the viruses we encountered this year, and our B cell antibody immunity no longer recognizes it efficiently. So well, this is why. Mm -hmm. So go ahead, Jess. I, I was just going to ask you. I mean, that's really fascinating. So I, I, I know that the um, the flu mutates. Obviously, you're describing that now. Does that mean are are you guys? And by you guys, I'm talking about immunologists. Are you just like year round working on a vaccine if this thing is changing? How does yeah. that work? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, so generally speaking, you know, we know that the, the flu is seasonal um, and it's typically, it coincides with the fall winter of whatever country we're talking about. So those are, you know, hemispherical differences uh, around the world. And so the labs that ultimately are developing um, what we call the seed strains. So these are going to be the strains of influenza that are, that are um, identified as being the most prevalent. And those are going to be the ones that are used to create the vaccine. Um, That's, that's a year round process, right? So that, so these labs are always looking and surveying what are the most common or in theory also most deadly strains of flu that are circulating. Um, They start growing those strains in the lab and then of of course ultimately are using those to actually, um, you know, manufacture the vaccine themselves because we have to grow lots of virus in order to produce the vaccine. Wowzer. Well, thank thank you um, and, and all the immunologists out there. <laughs> um, I interrupted you. I think you were going to, did you have anything else to say about how the flu mutates? Yeah, or? I was just going to mm-hmm. say, you know, these two processes, again, they're very unique to influenza. There are not a lot of other viruses that have both of these these processes. Um, And this is ultimately why influenza mutates so quickly, so much more quickly than even other RNA viruses. Um, And that's, you know, we're excluding DNA viruses from this whole discussion, because I think that's probably um, a topic for another, another episode. But the reason that these mutate or the fact that these mutate so quickly is ultimately why we need that annual vaccine um, every Mm -hmm. year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And okay, so let's just take a pause. Um, I'm all about that context. Can I just uh, maybe chime in here with some population health estimates? Yes, absolutely. Um, so the CDC estimates that between 9.3 million and 49 million cases of the flu occur each year, and that's just in the United States. And I think you alluded to this before, and I know we're going to talk more about this. Um, we know that the flu vaccine is not 100% effective. And I cannot tell you how many times I get messages from people saying, why would I get something if it's only, you know, 40% effective or whatever it is. Um, That being said, the flu vaccine may help prevent the, it may help prevent the flu, right? Some protection is better than no protection. Um, And as you said, it might reduce the severity of the disease in some cases. And I have some statistics later on that I'm going to reference. Um, And as you're describing, Andrea, multiple strains of the flu circulate each year. Um, We know that some strains are more common in the fall and others in the spring. So, um, did we want to start talking? What What's next on our agenda? Do we want to start talking about other notable pandemics or? Um, yeah, I think, I think just really kind of, I think, highlighting the difference between what we call seasonal flu versus pandemic flu. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then of course we can lead into, um, you know, the actual disease itself. But um, so seasonal flu, again, these are, are circulating influenza viruses. These generally in humans are, Um, a few each of influenza A and influenza B strains. Um, These are the ones that typically that vaccine is going to prevent and protect us against. Pandemic flu, which again, does not happen often. Um, This is when you have one of these mutations that I just talked about, either it's usually an antigenic shift, meaning viruses completely exchange pieces of their genome and they created a whole novel strain of the flu. And because it's novel, just like with COVID-19, we have no 
protection, no immune uh, memory to it. And it becomes a very, very widespread outbreak. Um, so in our kind of recent history, we've had four notable pandemics of the flu. Um, and these the pandemics are only caused by influenza A strains because the B strains do not mutate as quickly and they only occur in humans. Um, these A strains are often from jumping species, um, actually kind of a similar phenomenon as we are seeing with the current pandemic of SARS-CoV-2. Um, so I think the most significant one is the 1918 pandemic, and this was the most severe influenza pandemic. It was caused by what we call an H1N1 strain. So that's going back to that hemagglutinin and the neuraminidase. So H is the hemagglutinin, N is the neuraminidase. There's a variety of different variants of those. So the combination creates that name. So H1, first variant of hemagglutinin, N1, first variant of neuraminidase. And, and Andrea, you know, so many people call this the Spanish flu, uh, yes. a huge pet peeve of mine. It's, it's, um, I think, uh, people think that it originated in Spain. It actually did not. Correct. Um, it was just that news coverage of it did. So I just wanted yes. to, to chime in with that. And the uh, reason, the reason that the news coverage, um, because everybody else was so focused on, you know, wartime activities, um, Spanish media were actually the ones that were reporting on it or- originally, um, um, so yeah, so we we call it you know pandemic flu or H one N one. You know, Spanish flu is is just a very big misnomer, unfortunately. Right. right. Um, now this this particular strain was thought to have jumped species from um, a, an avian flu, so a bird influenza. Um, and this thing was a real doozy. Um, it's estimated that a third of the world's population was infected, about 500 million people, uh, with 50 million deaths. Um, there were some other estimates circulating uh, that run as high as 100 million victims, which would be around 3% of the world's population. Um and we were talking about this, Andrea, that, you know, the exact numbers are impossible to know because we know that there wasn't great medical record keeping um, at that time. And the CFR, that's a statistic that we talk a, a lot about um, with regard to COVID. Just a little refresher if you're not familiar with that statistic, uh, but it's the proportion of deaths from a certain disease compared to the total number of people diagnosed with the disease for a particular period. Um, and it's important to note that the denominator there is, is well, both the numerator and the denominator of that statistic are very important, of course. Um, but the denominator is, um, you know, if, if we're not sure how many people were actually diagnosed with a disease, then our CFR is not going to be accurate. Um, however, that, that being said, CFR estimates for the 1918 pandemic vary. They typically range from 2 to 8 percent. Uh, and again, uh, lack of accuracy case numbers affect our ability to um, to estimate what the actual CFR was at the time. Yeah. And I think something really unique about this particular um, outbreak, so the H1N1 pandemic um, in 1918, was that um, normally our seasonal flu, we see high mortality rates in, in um, young children and elderly adults. But in this particular pandemic, we saw extremely high mortality rates in healthy young individuals, so from 20 to 40 years old, as well as your expected young and elderly. Um, and and from a biological perspective, we still don't understand why this particular particular strain of the flu has this uh, demographic effect. Um, And this is something that we saw in a later pandemic with a similar strain um, where healthy young individuals are actually being very dramatically infected. Um, 
this pandemic was also um, where the mantra spit spreads death cropped out of. Um, At that point in time, we had not identified that this was a virus and that this was the influenza virus. This was not identified until um, several decades later. Um, But people were aware that it was person-to-person transmission that was spreading this illness. Um, And this was actually a situation where mask mandates were also implemented across the United States. So one other thing I wanted to mention is that just, again, for context, I'm the queen of context, um, let's talk about the world now versus what it looked like in 1918. So now we're much more densely populated. So back then, there were fewer than 2 billion people. Now we have 7.5 billion people. um, And we move around a heck of a lot more, right? We're flying, well, not right now. We're not doing a lot of flying. Um, but in 1918, there was no air travel. People were um, going around on horses and, and and by you know ships and boats and and so I was just thinking um, the the spread of virus is much faster than before. Uh, you know now it's just so much more easily spread. <laughs> you know viruses can spread so much more easily, and and of course uh, there were no vaccines back then. So. Anyway, yeah. The bit. first the first influenza vaccine came out in 1945-1946 and it was a, a bivalent which means it's two bi for two. That was an influenza A and an influenza B vaccine, but yeah, in the 1918 pandemic there was no way to really mitigate it, but um, you know, the the advantage was there were much less people. We did not have globalization, um, but it was still extremely uh, catastrophic. Um, I'm going to quickly just touch on the other three pandemics. Um, they're, they're obviously very important, um, both from a scientific and a public health perspective, but I think the most critical one to keep in mind was the 1918. Um, we had another pandemic in 1957. This was instead of an H1N1, it was an H2N2. Um, and this was a, an avian human um, reassortment. So it recombined with a bird, a human influenza and a bird influenza. Um, with this particular pandemic, rapid response was actually key. Um, because we had developed a vaccine, you know, about 13 years prior, 12 years prior, by the time the pandemic had actually reached the United States, we already had a vaccine ready to go. Um, Globally, there was about 1.1 million estimated deaths, which in this instance was a case fatality rate of about 0.67%. So obviously much, much less of an impact than the 1918 pandemic, but still uh, a very, very significant burden um, for mortality, morbidity. We had another pandemic uh, about 11 years later, 1968. This was an H3N2. And something interesting or unique for this one was the very first outbreak of this particular strain, the serotype H3N2 in humans. Um, This one was determined to be uh, the, uh, it was a recombination of human, swine, and birds influenzas, um, but it was determined that pigs, swine were the intermediate host. Um, This this impacted, this had about a million global deaths. Um, This particular strain or, or slight variant of the H3N2 now circulates as a seasonal flu. Um, And then the most recent pandemic is the 2009 pandemic. This was an H1N1, which was actually the same 
type, the same strain, the same serotype as the 1918 pandemic, not the same exact flu, but the same class. Um, And this, again, was a recombination of swine, bird, and human, um, although we called it the swine flu. Um, This one had about 300,000 deaths globally. So again, we had pandemic response. We had a lot more mitigation efforts. We had a lot better understanding of the biology of influenza. Um, But again, in this instance, in this pandemic, we saw, again, a high uh, mortality burden in healthy young individuals as well. This is such a lovely trip down memory lane, Andrew. I know. (laughs) Thank you for the history lesson. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, so let's switch gears and talk about some of the key similarities and differences between COVID-19 and the flu. Um, Andrea, I know it's a big pet peeve of both of ours that people, uh, some people claim that COVID-19 is nothing more than the flu. Um, And while there are some similarities, we know that there are some key differences that make COVID-19 more dangerous. So let's start with some similarities. So um, first of all, transmission, we know that both the flu and COVID-19 are both respiratory illnesses. They're spread in similar ways, um, mainly droplet transmission, person to person. Um, Less common for both, but still possible is fomite transmission, where people can touch a surface with viruses on it and then transfer the germs um, to themselves by touching their face. Um, Anything else about similarities in, in modes of transmission? Yeah, I think those are the the key similarities about uh, how they're both spread ultimately. Okay, so let's let's talk about symptoms. Now, obviously, there are a, a lot of symptoms, but some of the the, the main ones that overlap um, are fever, cough, body aches, or myalgia, and sometimes GI upset, such as uh, vomiting and diarrhea, which is especially common in children. Uh, both can cause pneumonia. And I know you have more to say about that. Um, and and both uh, the flu and COVID-19 can be mild or severe, or of course, um, can lead to death. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and obviously, there are some less common presentations of both COVID-19 and influenza. Um, but it's important to note that even though there might be some similar symptoms, uh, such as the case with pneumonia, pneumonia as a result of the flu is caused by um, secondary bacterial pneumonia, whereas pneumonia associated with COVID-19 is typically due to the inflammatory response due to the immune reaction to the virus. So, you know, pneumonia is a very big catch-all. And I think that's important to keep in mind too. So let's talk about treatment. Uh, Again, right now we're just focused on similarities. Mm -hmm. So neither the flu nor COVID-19 is treatable with antibiotics, right? These are viruses, not bacterial infections. Um, And both are uh, mainly treated by addressing symptoms such as reducing fever. Um, Severe cases for both may require hospitalizations um, and some patients may require ventilation depending on how severe their their illness is. Uh, And of course, there are antiviral medications 
that may shorten the duration of both illnesses. Andrea? Yeah, um, those those are certainly the similarities. I think that's really where um, the two illnesses and the two viruses diverge. Right. <laughs> um, actually, just one final thing in terms of similarities. I guess we should just talk about prevention. Yes. Um, both can be prevented by mask wearing, uh, frequent and thorough hand washing, really good hygiene, coughing into the crook of your elbow, also known as the vampire cough. Um, <laughs> And of course, staying home, isolating yourself when you're sick and limiting contact with people who are infected. Um, you know, a, a lot of public health professionals have been really worried about what we're calling a, a twindemic. Uh, but we're hopeful that if people are already taking these precautions for COVID-19, it might also help lessen the burden of the flu this season. So fingers crossed. Yeah, I think something that I've been asked quite a few times is, you know, do we think the fact that we're already wearing masks? to limit the spread of COVID-19 means that we will have a milder flu season. And that's certainly possible. Um, I think we're also going to see higher uptake of the vaccine this year um, because, of course, uh, having the flu is going to be a comorbidity to increasing your risk of COVID-19 and and vice versa. Um, But also because there is some of that symptom overlap, there could be a concern where, um, you know, people who are self-diagnosing, especially that could be an additional um, hospital burden where people who have, um, you know, similar symptoms, they may not know whether they have the flu or the or COVID-19 and they may, um, you know, increase hospital visits and, and whatnot. Very good point. Um, I guess now we should shift gears and talk about some of the notable differences. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's talk about the R naught, and we talked about this in a past episode. But basically, it's on average how many person, how many people one person infected would will infect. How many other people will be infected by one person who's infected? Sorry, um, and and that's without any uh, preventative measures in place. So on average, we know that the R naught of influenza is about one point three. So on average, a person infected with the flu will go on to infect one point three people. Um, um, while the R not for COVID nineteen, there's a range, um, and right now the range is about one point four to four. Uh, but the most commonly ex- uh, accepted value of the R not for COVID nineteen is two point five. So again, on average, a person infected with COVID nineteen will go on to infect two point five people, uh, and that's again if we're not, you know, if we're not wearing masks and taking those preventative measures. Um, so. COVID-19 is far more contagious than the flu. So that is a very important point. I didn't know if you wanted to comment on that before we move on. Yeah, Jess, um, you're absolutely right. It's more contagious. And, you know, the fact that we don't have any proven vaccine or treatment options for COVID-19, whereas we we do have those for influenza, is going to um, obviously shift the effective reproductive value um, of influenza to be much lower, um, whereas we don't have a lot of those mitigation um, efforts for COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about incubation period. Mm-hmm. So um, the incubation period for COVID-19 is uh, typically, we say about five days, right? That's the median uh, versus about one to two days for influenza. Um, and something that was really important, I, I don't know if you mentioned it on last week's episode or the one prior, but you mentioned, Andrea, that the flu is less often asymptomatic, right? And that's really important. If, if you have the flu, you're most likely to have symptoms. 
symptoms, right? You're not going to be asymptomatic if you have the flu. Whereas with COVID-19, we have seen many asymptomatic cases. And that's really dangerous because even if you're asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic, you can still uh, be contagious and give COVID-19 to other people. Yeah, the that plus the, the much longer incubation period. So it's a range of two to 10 days with a median of about five days for COVID-19. Um, that means you can interact with, you know, in theory, exponentially more people than when you were incubating influenza. Um, so it gives you the potential to um, lead to higher amounts of community spread uh, in the case of COVID-19 versus influenza. Mm-hmm. So let's talk, of course, everyone wants to know about mortality. And mm-hmm. again, the CFR, case fatality rates. Um, the seasonal flu, the CFR is estimated to be about 0.1%. Um, and again, for COVID-19, there, there's a range. Um, it's extremely variable country to country. Um, currently, the estimates are about 05 to, to 4%, depending on the country. Um, but we know that COVID-19 is at least five to 10 times more deadly than the flu. Um, And I just want to note here, we put something up on our social media uh, page yesterday comparing mortality from the flu uh, to COVID-19. Right now, we know in the U.S. alone, over 210,000 people have died from COVID-19. If we add up the number of people who died in the past five flu seasons, five years worth of flu, that totals just around that that number, 210,000. So clearly we have less than one year's worth of data on COVID-19 and that already equals the past five seasons of the flu. Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly a much more dramatic um, infection, which which again is not terribly unexpected because it is a, a novel virus, a pandemic, as opposed to a, a seasonal circulating virus. But I think it's really important to, uh, you know, set the record straight and really clear the air that these are not comparable illnesses. Um, one, one difference that I think maybe is important is, um, you know, typically the mortality rates that we're seeing with COVID-19, they're increasing with age um, and comorbidities. So older adults, especially ones with comorbidities, um, are, are the, um, you know, highest predictor of fatalities. Whereas with influenza, there are actually two really high risk groups, very young children and then older adults. So children younger than five and older adults. So, you know, the fact that although they have some symptom similarity and they're transmitted relatively similarly, we're seeing demographic differences in, um, you know, the disease burden in itself. That is so important. And one final thing I just want to add mortality before we move on to the next topic um, is that, so as I said, so far, just this this year's uh, data alone for COVID-19, we've seen over 210,000 deaths. The most that we, the the highest mortality that we've seen from the flu um, in in our recent history was the 2017 to 2018 flu season. Uh, And that year we had about 62,000 deaths associated with flu. So again, let's compare one year, the the highest mortality that we've seen in one year from flu at at 62,000 compared to um, less than one year's worth of data for COVID-19 at 210,000 and counting. Um, 
Absolutely. So, and just one one other thing, of course, is let's talk about vaccines. We know that we have a vaccine for the flu, um, and we are working on a vaccine for COVID nineteen. But before we get there, Andrew, did you want to talk a bit about this year's flu vaccine? Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, the very first flu shot, a uh, flu vaccine, was developed in the the mid nineteen forties, and this was what we called a, a bivalent, which means it's two different um, flu viruses. So it was one influenza A and one influenza B. This year's vaccines, um, the predominant ones we have what we call our are uh, quadrivalent, meaning there are four components. Um, there is one that's a trivalent, but it's going to be less common. Um, the quadrivalent one is going to protect against four um, common circulating strains of influenza. Um, the Historical and the most typical method to generate influenza is actually raising them in in ovo in an egg in chicken eggs. Um, one of the one of the labs at my grad school actually was one of the labs that developed um, you know the the influenza vaccine, and one of our walk in incubators was just full of chicken eggs all year round. Um, <laughs> But again, we do have an egg-free version for people that have a legitimate egg allergy. Um, but both of these, the egg-based and the egg-free, um, protect against two strains of influenza A and two strains of influenza B. So um, they're different variants. So there's an H1N1 component. There's an H3N2. Those are the influenza A. And then there is the Victoria lineage for the influenza B and the Yamagata lineage for the influenza a B. So the nomenclature of the two types of influenzas are different. But again, what you need to know is that there are four different strains or four different influenza viruses that each of these quadrivalent vaccines are protecting against this year. Um, so, you know, I, I love the context. So I'm going, I'm uh, going to uh, present some stats right now. So again, I know, I think we've said probably like 20 times. And if people are doing a shot every time that we say this, um, about how <laughs> the flu vaccine is not 100% protective, uh, please do not drive. Uh, but yeah, so the influenza vaccine is at least moderately effective in preventing the flu, right? So as we said, effectiveness typically ranges uh, from between 40 to 60% in a given year. Um, and again, there's evidence that patients who develop the flu after they've been vaccinated, uh, that they have a milder course than if they had not been vaccinated. So just wanted to point to some research that was conducted by the CDC between 2012 and 2015 that found that receiving a flu vaccine reduced the risk of, be of adults being admitted to the hospital for flu complications by 37% and the risk of being admitted to the ICU by 82%. So again, even when the flu doesn't prevent you from getting the flu altogether, uh, it can definitely reduce the severity uh, of the course of the illness. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's really why we are such vocal proponents of the flu shot. <laughs> um, again, anybody six months or older um, should be getting that flu shot. Uh, the protection for the flu shot lasts about six months and peak flu month in the United States is usually around February. So you want to make sure to be getting that flu shot um, really starting at the end of September through the end of October. Um, so right around now, right around when this episode so is launching is really that optimal time to get your flu shot and be protected through the flu season. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Sorry. And, Andrew, I was just going to say, and you gave great advice to my mom that I know we referenced in a past episode. If you did get the shot a little early, let's say, you know, my mother got hers in, in August this year, you recommend getting a booster uh, early in 2021. Is that right? Yeah, I would say probably around January. It takes about two weeks to mount that potent memory immune response to the vaccine. Um, and, and the vaccine is an inactivated virus, so it doesn't actually give you the flu, but you do mount that immune response. So you will get, you know, usually a, a mild immune reaction to that. Um, but it, that takes about two weeks. So you want to make sure that you're still protected when you hit that peak flu month in February. Um, now there's a couple of exceptions with the flu shot. So generally speaking, everybody's going to get the same, you know, quadrivalent available vaccine, um, with young kids. So children that are younger than eight years old, if it's their very first time ever getting a flu shot for, you know, the history of, of their lives, there's a two dose, um, flu shot. So they would get one dose and they would get another booster essentially four weeks after that. Um, that's to ensure that they have that primed, that very potent immune response. And then for subsequent flu shots in, in um, subsequent years, they would only get a single. Um, and there is a high dose version for, for folks that are over 65. Um, that's essentially four, four times the normal dose. And that's to ensure that because they are a very high risk group, they are going to have a, a very nice, strong, robust immune response to the vaccine and be protected against the flu. I have a really random question for you. I um, I got my kids vaccinated uh, earlier this week, actually. They got their flu shots. So proud of them. Um, and now my, my daughter is two and a half years old and my son is three and a half years old. And they gave her shot in the thigh while uh, his was given in the arm. Do you, was that just random or is there a reason for that? I don't know. It, it, it's ultimately, you know, presumably just because they're looking for, um, you know, a, a dense muscle region. Um, it's the same sort of rationale when they pinch the, the deltoid to get the vaccine in the intramuscular space. Um, I don't know if it's common practice or just happened to be the person that administered the shot, but, um, Hmm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be terribly worried about that. Um, Interesting. But um, but typically if the deltoid site, which is in that upper arm muscle, is not it's not preferred due to it could be a variety of things, presumably because her arms are probably small, um, then you can use the thigh. Interesting. I should have asked. I might call them just to find out why they did that. Um, Okay. So let's just, we know that there are so many myths and misconceptions around Mm -hmm. the flu and the flu shot. So let's just dispel some of the the most common ones. You you just touched on a very important one that we talked about in a past episode. Can a flu vaccine give you the flu? No, um, it cannot give you the flu. Um, Flu flu shots given with a needle uh, are made with either inactivated Uh, killed viruses or with only a single protein from the flu virus. And the nasal spray vaccine uh, contains live viruses, but they're attenuated or weakened. So they will not give you, uh, they will not give you the flu. Um, And just one other thing is that, yeah, maybe you'll have a sore arm for a day or two. um, And maybe you'll feel like you're, you kind of are getting sick. Um, And you said this, Andrea, that, you know, that's not the flu. That's actually a really good sign that your immune system is mounting a response. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Typically, you know, you might, might feel a little lethargic. You might have a very low grade fever. Um, this is because your body is recognizing the component of the vaccine, the killed virus, and it's mounting that memory immune response that it would normally mount 
in the case of an actual infection, but it's going to protect you in advance so that when when you actually encounter the the wild flu, um, you don't you're already protected. You already have memory and you don't actually get sick. So needless to say, the flu shot is a, is much less painless <laughs> than the actual flu. So if th- you can get your flu shot, I go think you on mean and- much more painless. Than, oh, much, than much more flu. painless. Oh my, whoopsies. <laughs> um, yes, <laughs> the flu shot is much more painless. Oh my gosh, I meant painful, and I really botched that. Thank you for <laughs> catching that. Um, I think it's because I'm just really excited to talk about this next myth, which is I we get questions about this all the time. People talking about the ingredients in mm-hmm. vaccines and the and two. Yep, sorry. I just want to jump in. We are going to do a more comprehensive episode on these sorts of things, but this one is particularly important to mention in the context of the flu shot. Yes. So the two ingredients that I get asked about the most are thimerosal and formaldehyde. So let's just talk very briefly about that. And again, as Andrea said, we'll do a much deeper dive uh, into vaccine ingredients on a future episode. But thimerosal is ethyl mercury. Mercury is a naturally occurring element found in the Earth's crust, soil, and water. Um, Once released, we know that certain types of bacteria in the environment can change mercury to methylmercury. Now, methylmercury, again, just I just want to make clear here, thimerosal is ethylmercury, but there's another type of mercury called methylmercury that makes its way through the food chain in fish, animals, and, hu- in, and humans. And at high levels, it can be toxic to people. But again, when we're talking about thimerosal, we're talking about ethylmercury. And studies comparing the two suggest that they're processed very differently in the human body. And actually, ethylmercury is broken down and excreted much more easily and rapidly than methylmercury. So therefore, ethylmercury, also known as thimerosal, is much less likely than methylmercury to accumulate in the body and cause harm. Uh, Andrea, did you want to add anything here? Yeah, I think this really underscores the the concept of, um, you know, some basic chemistry, chemical properties. So, you know, just because things are slightly related, um, you know, structurally doesn't mean that they're similar in function. And I think that really underscores the concept that all mercury is not the same. Um, and we see this in a, in a similar situation, something that maybe our, our listeners can relate to with ethyl alcohol and methyl alcohol. So ethyl alcohol is also called ethanol. That is the alcohol in the alcohol we drink. Um, obviously, we we can become intoxicated by it, um, but the toxicity is very low. This is in direct contrast to methyl alcohol, also known as methanol or wood alcohol. This is in things like antifreeze. This is, again, very slight difference in the chemical composition, and that is extremely toxic to people. Um, very similar phenomenon that you see with ethylmercury versus methylmercury. Andrea, have you seen, this is just making me think of this meme that's going around. It's a list of chemicals and it says, would you inject this into <laughs> your body? And turns out they're listing the, you know, all the, the chemical components of a banana. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that's, I think that also, you know, just really highlights the fact that just because something is a long word or it sounds kind of scary, it doesn't actually necessarily mean that it's, you know, everything is chemicals. Every single thing, our bodies, they're made out of chemicals. So this concept of chemical free or, you know, whatever. It's a fallacy because that's what everything is made out of. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, just very quickly, why do we even use ethyl mercury? Um, it's used as a preservative. It's been used since the 1930s. Um, today, it's actually only found in vaccines for the flu. So it's only found in the flu shot. Uh, preservatives are very important. They're necessary per- for preventing dangerous bacterial or fungal contamination. Um, but thimerosal has become a major source of vaccine safety concerns. Um, I, I just want to underscore here that not a single scientific study has found a link between ethyl mercury and autism or any other harmful effects. So just wanted to, to make that quite clear. Uh, anything to add before we move on to formaldehyde? Um, I would just, again, reiterate the fact that, you know, thimerosal and even the quantities used in these vaccines are going to be much lower than any sort of kind of naturally occurring mercury that you would eat. For example, eating tuna has actually large quantities of um, methyl mercury, the harmful mercury. Um, and so, again, I think I think we've really, you know, uh, underscored this, that, that again, this, this low amount of thimerosal present in the influenza vaccine, um, Mm -hmm. is, is not harmful. There's been no data that show that it actually has a a risk associated with it. Um, you know, so yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah. Um, okay. So next, uh, formaldehyde. So we use formaldehyde in vaccines to inactivate viruses and detoxify bacterial toxins, ensuring that they don't result in sickness uh, when they're injected into our bodies. Uh, now, the EPA does classify formaldehyde as a carcinogen, um, a- uh, as does the International Agency for Cancer Research and the National Toxicology Program. Um, there have been several studies that have linked long-term strong formaldehyde exposure to certain types of cancer. Now, these are the, the stats that are always thrown in my face, Andrea. I'm sure they're, they're, they're thrown in yours. But of course, context matters. Mm-hmm. Um, so formaldehyde is always present in the human body. Let, let's say that one more time. We always have formaldehyde in our bodies as a part of our natural metabolic process. Yep. Um, again, long-term exposure to high amounts can overwhelm our system and be harmful. But the amount of formaldehyde that's found in vaccines is a very, very small. Um, it's diluted down to residual amounts during the manufacturing process. Uh, in fact, I always love to cite this, the FDA reports that there's 50 to 70 times more formaldehyde present in an average newborn baby's body than in a single dose of vaccine. So the the highest amount of formaldehyde present in any vaccine is 0.02 milligrams per dose, while an average two-month-old baby has around 1.1 milligrams of formaldehyde circulating in their body and um, with, with higher naturally occurring amounts for older children. Yeah, I think this really underscores the concept, and this is true for, for almost everything, that the dose makes the poison. Um, you know, in a cancer biology class that I took, you know, we talked about how ultimately everything can lead to processes that can progress to cancer in our bodies. And I'm not going to get into the weeds on that, but even things that are classically considered healthy for us at high enough consumption, um, they can actually be quite dangerous. Mm -hmm. Very good point. Um, Andrew, I feel like we could talk about this for hours. Uh, It's probably a longer episode than we had hoped. Um, Is there anything else you want to add before you take us home? 
Um, I think, you know, just really reiterating the fact that, you know, this flu season is going to be somewhat of, of an unexpected or an unanticipated situation. We don't know exactly how the seasonal flu is going to interplay with COVID-19. Um, it's, it's, expected that the fact that we are wearing masks might um, mitigate some of the the burden of flu on us. Um, however, with the fact that having flu means you also have a now comorbidity with risk factors for COVID-19 could also mean that we might see an uptick in COVID-19 cases as well. So I think, you know, we want to stay on our toes. We want to be prepared. We want to keep practicing hygiene um, as we're doing. Um, of course, get your flu shot um, because that's going to be your best prevention for um, preventing the flu and also possibly reducing your risk factors associated with contracting COVID-19 as well. Mm -hmm. And if you have any other questions or concerns about the flu or the flu shot, please, you know, shoot us a message. We're very active on social media on our Instagram page, our Facebook page. So don't do not hesitate to reach out. Absolutely. Um, so I guess we will wrap up for today. Um, I want to thank everybody for joining us. We hope you've learned a thing or two. In our next episode, we are going to discuss whether it is possible to boost your immune system. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah.